Like I said, I'm glad you guys are here today as we launch out. I want to kind of start out by just sharing with you uh, some of my own faith journeys, my own faith stories. Some of you guys have heard this kind of stuff before, but I'm going to zero in on on one specific aspect and I want you to follow along. I grew up in a home not far from here in Kiwani, Illinois, so a little town uh, kind of north and northwest of here, something like that, Uh, and grew up in a home where we didn't know Christ. We were, we were good, uh, church-going people. We believed in God. We served in the community. We went to good schools. People on the outside would look at, look at us and say, oh, you're a nice family, right? You're a good family kind of thing. We had the, the fake smiles and everything all, all figured out and knew how to, how to play the church game. But really, if you'd have asked us, if you'd have really pressed into our hearts and our lives, I had no idea that you could or should know Christ or have a relationship with Jesus or anything like that. In fact, if you were to strip back the veneer and the fake smile on Sunday morning and peek into our lives, you'd have seen our lives are kind of a wreck growing up. Uh, there was bitterness and unforgiveness that sort of ran rampant in our family. As a result, there was anger and blame and hatred. Things didn't seem to resolve. There was emptiness There was broken relationships. There was all kinds of junk that characterized our lives. We just hid it behind the the fake Sunday morning smiles, right? But if you looked under the surface, uh, it was sort of a downward spiral. It got so bad for me uh, individually, a lot of the the anger and the the stuff that kind of characterized our family got directed at me during a a certain era in high school. And it got so bad that I I can remember uh, coming up with a plan saying, man, if this is all there is to life, I don't think I want to live it. And I came up with a, a plan to take my own life. And I can remember sitting down on multiple occasions thinking, I'm gonna I'm gonna do it. Right? I'm gonna I'm gonna see it through. And uh, and sort of in a last ditch effort in, in those moments, I thought, well, maybe there is something more. Maybe there's something I'm missing to life. Maybe there's something else. And I thought, you know what? Maybe there's something to this church thing, this Jesus thing, this Christianity thing. And so I I kind of made up my mind. It kind of started an, an all-out search for me where I thought, you know, I'm gonna see. Check this out and see if maybe there's something more. And so I started looking and started, started asking people, started looking for, for somebody that, that would look a little bit like Jesus, right? That would look like they're experiencing a, a different kind of life than I am. Somebody that could, I didn't know it at the time, but somebody that could point me to Jesus. And I can remember looking and I looked in our church. I even sat down with our pastor at one point and asked him. I looked in our community. I looked in, in places that we served. I was, in, I was in Boy Scouts and all that. So we looked at looked in some of those places, looked, in, looked at my school and my family, everything else. And you know what? The reality is I didn't find one single person that could point me or, or would point me to a relationship with Jesus. I got more, more often than not, I got the buck up little camper speech, right? Like, you're a good kid, just sort of, right? Tough it out and you'll be fine kind of thing. Now, one single person said, you know what? There is more to life than what you're experiencing. And it's found in a relationship with Jesus. If you would just turn your heart and your, put your faith in him, he has more in store for you than you can possibly imagine. Not one person in a town of 16 or 18,000 people at the time. In fact, it took two more years uh, before I went off to college. And uh, at eight, the, the age of 18 years old, I met the first person that I, I could easily recognize anyway as a Christ follower. And they, within days, were, were pointing me back home to Jesus and saying, man, uh, he's got good stuff. He loves you so much. He's crazy about you. He thinks you're worth dying for. 
kind of stuff. And it started this spiritual journey for me, which didn't take long because when I looked at this young woman, this 18-year-old woman that was telling me and my friends about Jesus, there was something different about her. She wasn't just saying these kind of religious words. There was a love in her that I had never seen before. There was a fullness and a peace and a joy that was foreign to me and my family. And within, within, like I said, a few, few weeks, really, I'd come to the point where I said, you know what, I know enough that I want what she has. And I got down on my knees, I opened up my heart and life to Christ and said, Jesus, I need you. I want you. I want to follow you. And it was like the lights went on for the first time. Literally, within moments, I bowed down and I got up and I was a different person. <laughs> I mean... I felt God's love and his smile on my life. His spirit came flooding in, brought me to life. Suddenly things that had never made sense to me before, suddenly there was clarity about life, about why I was here. And I wanted every single person around me to know this amazing love that, I had, that I'd been shown in Jesus. I wanted everybody to experience it. But there was, a, there was also a moment not long after that when I can remember kind of looking back over my growing up years and thinking, man, I was standing on the edge. I was ready to take my own life. I was ready to jump. And I was like, where was the church? Where were the other Christ? In a town of 16,000 people, you don't think there were any other Christ followers? Where was the church? Why wasn't somebody saying, don't do it? Right? Don't, don't, there's life found in Jesus if you would just turn to him. It's, it's literally a question that has probably haunted me in some ways every day of my life since then. It's been sort of the driving force uh, of my life since then. I've just kind of come to a point of saying, you know, I don't ever want there to be a person around me. I don't ever want there to be somebody that's looking, somebody that's hungry, and I don't tell them, right? I want, I want every person in our community, every person in, in, you know, in our sphere and then some to have an opportunity to meet and know and follow and come to life in Jesus, don't you? Man, where is the church? Hmm. Well, today... We're going to be launching a new series, and it's, it's kind of, this is the heartbeat behind it. Just saying, man, it's a call for the church, for us, for you and me, to remember afresh the mission and the call of Jesus to go and to, to point people to, to him. And so we're going to be talking about that. We're going to be pushing and leaning into that and ordering our lives around it. But in all honesty, I think my experience of, of looking, of being lost, I, well, I wouldn't have used that word in that day, but of being lost and alone and feeling empty and discouraged and whatever, all that stuff, and not being able to find somebody to point me to Jesus, not being able to find a Christ follower who is there pointing the way to me during that era, I think that's more common than we'd like to think. In fact, let me share just a couple stats. I'll kind of go through this. Ed Stetzer, a couple of years ago, uh, published, or he's, he's kind of a missiologist and a pollster. He published an article in the Washington Post on Easter, and the headline was this. If it doesn't stem its decline, mainline Protestantism has just 23 Easter's left. Go to, go to the next slide if you would, Jenna. He went on to share some of these stats about sort of mainline denominational churches in America. And this is what he said. He said, he, on this chart, he said, only 10% of the population of the U.S. actually identifies with a mainline Protestant church. Churches like 
Baptist or Methodist or Presbyterian, like mainline denominations, only 10%. And out of those, only 2.7% actually attend regularly. Well, that's only a certain segment of the church. And so let me share another one with you. Go ahead, next slide. This is a... some great data that's been uh, done uh, by an organization called the American Church in Crisis. But uh, as of 2015, this is fascinating, in Illinois, only 17.3% of the population are in any Christian church on a given weekend. And that's very broad, right? Stemming from Catholic to non-denominational to evangelical to to mainly all of them combined would only say 17%. And that number seems to be decreasing one or 2% every 10 years, every decade. It's leading to a point where by 2050, pollsters are saying, the states, the U.S., will be pretty much a spiritual wasteland, much like Western Europe, will be in single digits of the population that will be in church on any given weekend. These, these are people that, that, right, these are people that are uh, absent from the church. 80, you know, in, in, our, in our state, what, 83% or whatever of people are absent from the church and most likely separated from Christ. Even in Peoria and Tazewell counties here in our area, the stats are very similar. Between 80 and 85% of people in our counties are not in any Christian church on any given weekend. They're not hearing the gospel. They're likely not connected to Christ. What that means is that there are 250,000 plus people just in our area that are our mission field, that are likely far from God, that many of whom might be teetering on the edge, looking and scanning their lives and their workplaces and their university classrooms and everything else, scanning and just saying, is there hope, right? Is there something more to life? Is there anybody that can point me in a direction to something more? We are the most connected generation and and world the world has ever been, and yet the number one descriptor that people would say if you asked them to describe how they feel is, I feel lonely. I feel disconnected. I feel empty on the inside. You want to know why? Because they're missing out on the most important thing in life. There is one who wants to come and fill them and bring them to life in ways they couldn't imagine. And that someone is Jesus. It is the 83% of the people in our region. It is the 250,000 people. Those are the people that the church. Who's the church? Raise your hand, right? If you are a follower of Jesus, then you are the church. And you and I are called to live on mission for Jesus. We are called to reach them. We are called to point them back home to the Father. Oh, man. Like I said, today we're launching this new series, 250,000 Reasons. 250,000 reasons that you and I need to live on mission for Jesus, right? 250,000 reasons that we need to be praying and loving and building relationship with and reaching out to people that need desperately to know of Jesus. People that, as God opens the door, people that we need to point back home to him. 
The mission of Jesus compels us forward. We cannot and must not stay in our comfy, stagnant faith communities. There's at least 250,000 reasons in our region alone that compels us into the mission of Jesus. So today, I'm just going to do kind of an intro, a high, like 10,000 foot view flyover of the mission of Jesus, what that means for us, and then I'm going to invite you and me, I'm going to invite us in to a five-week-long journey, a five-week-long process of us simply surrendering our lives, our hearts, everything that we are, and saying, God, how do you want to use me to reach one more or two more or five to help them come to know Jesus? Because as we'll see in a little bit, because there is very little besides knowing Jesus and making him known, there's very little that actually matters beyond that. Is it quiet in here? It's true. And that's, that's kind of where we're going today. And I'm just, my, my only request of you is to engage in this process, to come with open hearts, to receive what God has to say for you. We're going we're gonna to talk a lot about surrendering and sort of laying our lives down, all, all that we are down and responding to how God prompts us to live for stuff that's going to last. All right, fair enough. Start out, I just want to talk about the mission of Jesus. And again, some of you might be, uh, well, duh. Some of you might be, this might be like, I don't know. Some of it might be new for you. Who knows? But just kind of stick with me uh, because I think it's a pretty compelling case if you look at it. I'm going to start with Luke uh, chapter 19, verse 10. This is one of many places that Jesus sort of puts his mission statement out there. He, there's a lot of times where Jesus is, will say like, well, this is why I have come. Or this is why I have come. I just want to build the case for you. This is straight from the lips of Jesus. And this is what he says. He says, for the son of man, which by the way, who is that? Right, it's, it's, it's actually a reference to a, a Daniel kind of prophecy kind of thing. He's looking back. It's kind of Jesus' favorite nickname for himself, though. If he refers to himself, chances are he'll say the Son of Man. He's talking about him, the Messiah, the, the Savior, the King. He's saying the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's it. That's pretty straightforward, is it not? I want you to say this with me. The mission of Jesus is to seek. Okay, that was, let me try again. The mission of Jesus is to seek. And to save the lost. Who's the lost? Who's the lost? Anybody that's apart from Jesus, right? Seek and to save the lost. It's anybody that's not in a, in a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. He came to seek and to save the lost. Now, this passage in Luke 19, if you read the context around it, uh, where this verse comes from, it's a passage, it records an interaction between Jesus and a tax collector known as Zacchaeus. You guys, anybody heard of Zacchaeus before? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, right? A wee little man was he, right? He's a little guy. Uh, and and uh, he was a tax collector, which in that day kind of meant he made his living by kind of ripping off people for as much as he possibly could, in addition to the taxes he had to collect. That's how he made his living. They were not, they, they were considered sort of the lowest, some of anyway, the lowest of the low of sinners, right? In fact, Jesus gets accused of hanging out with people like this, and they'll, they'll say, tax collectors, and then they put, and sinners. They'll say, he's a friend of tax collectors, like, and sinners, so, like, they're, they're like tax collectors don't even fit in the same category as the rest of the sinners, right? They're worse than that. Tax, you hang out with tax collectors kind of stuff. Not a great kind of guy. And yet Jesus pursues him. 
He seeks him out. He pursues him. Jesus is coming by with his entourage. Uh, he's a wee little man. He's a short guy. So he climbs up in a tree to get a glimpse of this guy named Jesus. And Jesus sees him and pursues him and says, you know what? Zacchaeus, why don't you come down? I'm hanging out with you tonight. He invites himself into his life over to his house to have a meal together or whatever. And uh, Jesus pursues him. Uh, Zacchaeus' life gets transformed and when people see this, when especially the religious leaders, they see this, they say, what kind of guy is this Jesus? He's going to be, you know, he's going to be in the home of a tax collector, kind of looking down their noses like who in their right mind would hang out with those kind of people? And Jesus, this is Jesus' response. Jesus says, those kind of people, who would do that? What don't you understand? This is why I have come. Right? I have come to seek and to, to seek, to move towards, to build a relationship with, to love, to whatever, and to save, to bring them back into right relationship with God, to see their sins forgiven, to see them headed for heaven, to see my spirit come into I came to seek and to save tax collector, sinner, anybody that recognizes their need, anyone that will open up their heart and life to me. I have come to seek and to save the lost. The mission of Jesus is to seek and to save those that are lost, right? Pretty straightforward. But it's not just this one passage. In fact, if you read through the Gospels, this stuff is peppered everywhere. Let me just kind of keep going. Uh, we talked about this maybe a month or, I don't know, two ago. I can't remember. But Jesus' first public teaching, uh, it's recorded in Luke chapter 4, uh, verse 18. He, Jesus walks into the temple. He opens up the Old Testament scroll of Isaiah to, to uh, chapter 61 and reads this. He says this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me. God has sent me. Right? This is a purpose statement kind of thing. God has sent me, listen to this, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free. You know what Jesus is saying? I've come to seek and to save the lost. That's what he's saying. And he's giving some descriptors of it, right? He's, he's giving some pictures of what that looks like. To seek and to save, to rescue and set free the oppressed and the poor and the lost and the hurting and the broken and to bring them back to the Father. That is why I have come. If you, if you go a couple chapters ahead to Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells a, a series of three different stories. Right? They all have the exact same point. It's a, one's the parable of the lost sheep. One's called the parable or the story of the lost coin. And then there's a, a parable or a story about a lost son. All three of these have the same basic plot. In each of these, uh, something of great value is lost, right? In, in, in one instance, a sheep goes and wanders away from the rest of the herd or whatever sheep are sheep and herds. Flocks, there you go, away from the flock. Yes, or uh, a woman loses a coin that's of great value in her home. Very disturbing to her. And in the, the last one, uh, a father has a son that gets distracted and wanders very far from home because he wants to live life on his own and his own freedom. And he finds himself wayward and lost and far away from the home of the father. The next thing that you notice in all these stories that they all have in common is whatever was lost was so valuable that it warrants a full-on search. It warrants, in fact, that Jesus says that the shepherd leaves the 99 
to go searching after the one. We sing a song about this uh, some Sundays, don't we? Right? Leaves the 99 to come after the one that's lost. In the, the lost coin, it's so valuable that the woman stops everything that she's doing. She starts moving furniture, cleaning the house, doing everything she can to find this lost valuable coin. And of course, the father uh, is standing at the edge of his property, scanning the horizon, longing and waiting to see the figure of the son he loves. And when he sees him, he runs down the road to him. He throws his arms around him. He extends forgiveness and grace and restores him and brings him back home. It warrants a full-on search. And the third thing they have in common is that when the lost thing or, or person is found, there is great rejoicing, right? There's, a, there's parties that break out as a result because this lost thing has been found. And the point of all these parables is Jesus is saying, that is God's heart towards you and me. In fact, that is why I have come, to seek and to save people that are lost. And he's not just talking about sheep or coins here, right? He's talking about people, those that have wandered far from home and are in need of saving. Matthew 20, uh, 28, it's a different context, but he's saying the same basic things. Jesus is talking against us. For even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. I'm going to ransom, I'm going to pay the price so that other people can come back to the Father. I've come to seek and to save the lost. We see this throughout Jesus' life. Throughout his teaching, we see it all the way to the cross, right, where this comes into crystal clear focus. And all of it, it's the same story. Jesus left heaven. He gave up many of the perks of heaven to sacrificially come down to earth, to live and eventually to die a horrible and painful death on the cross for my sins and for your sins. And he did this. Why? To seek and to save the lost. You see where I'm going? You ought to be able to say this in your sleep. This is not rocket science, right? It's the mission of Jesus. It's why he came. Say it. He came to see and to save the lost. Absolutely. This is the mission of Jesus. And you see it throughout his life. You see it throughout his death. And then he rises from the dead because not even death can hold its grips on him, right? Because he's not just the sacrificial lamb that died for the sins of the people, but he is God, right, who rose from the dead. And from that point forward, he spends 40 days and 40 nights with his followers. And right before he's taken up, he says, you know what? This has been my mission throughout my entire life. It's why I came in the first place, to seek and to save the lost. He calls his followers to him. And he says, now it's your mission. Now I'm taking... There's moments like the Great Commission or Acts 1, right, where we see, he says, now this mission that I've been living out, I am handing it over to you, and I am giving you the call and the commissioning to say, I'm going to give you power, and I'm going to send you out to seek and to save the lost. Listen to some of these, Acts 1, right, I just mentioned it. Jesus says, but the Holy Spirit will come on you. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, which is where they were, and in Judea, the area, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He says, but you, church, you followers of Jesus, you will be my witnesses to the world. You will share with them about me, about Jesus, about his life and death and resurrection, and you will give them the opportunity to come home to the Father. 
you, church, are to seek and to save the lost. Matthew 28, see the other one's known as the Great Commission, right? This is really well-known scripture where Jesus, again, right before he ascends, right before he goes up to heaven, he says this to his followers. All authority, all power in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, he's saying, I'm giving it to you. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you to the very end of the age. He's saying, I'm giving you authority to go and seek and save the lost and raise them up to be missionaries and send them out to seek and to save the lost disciples, right? That's the picture that he's giving them again and again. From the beginning, Jesus had even set this expectation with his followers, Matthew 4, 19, right? When he's calling uh, some of, you know, Peter and and others to follow him, he says, come and follow me, Jesus says, and here's what's going to happen, and I will send you out to fish for other people, (laughs) I'll send you out to, I'll make you fishers of men. I'll make you fishers of people. He's giving them a picture of what's going to come. Come and follow me. And as you follow me, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to use you to seek and to save the lost. Another place, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is teaching his followers and and the crowd. He says, you know what? Here's the deal. If you're a follower of me, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. Elsewhere, he said, I am the light of the world. But now he's saying to his followers, no, I'm going to use you to shine for me, to seek and to save the lost. You're the light of the world, but a town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. No, of course not. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, he says, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You get the picture? You get what we're saying here? Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And then he says, you know what? (laughs) Here's the deal. I'm going to pass that on to my followers. I'm going to give you a mission to live out every day of your life. And what is it? It's to help seek and to save others that are far from God, that are broken, that are hurting, whatever. Help point them back home. That's why we're here. That's literally why our church exists. It's worth giving our lives to. It's worth giving our all to. The early church understood the significance of this. In fact, if you trace it out, they understood it in jaw-dropping kinds of ways. In fact, so much so that 11 of the original 12 disciples, in fact, all but the apostle John, end up dying for their faith. But they don't just die for their faith. They die because they won't shut up about it, right? They won't. They can't stop but be telling every person they meet about how awesome Jesus is. There's life there. You gotta, you, he's changed my life. You gotta come see him. You gotta come meet this guy named Jesus. They just wouldn't shut up. The apostle Paul is another one, right? Ends up dying uh, for his, for, because he just wouldn't shut up. You can't stop these guys. They, they had understood that nothing else in life really matters that much for eternity except Jesus and his mission to the world. That's what we're called to. In fact, the Apostle Paul, there's a couple of great ones. I'm just going to mention one. Uh, it, says, it says this in uh, Acts 20, 24. It's actually, you're going to think this is crazy, but this is actually uh, my life verse. This is uh, the verse that I feel like this is what my life is supposed to be about. Acts 20, 24 says this. I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only, my only aim is to finish the race and to complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. I love 
love this uh, verse, but it, it uses some churchy language. So let me give it to you in the message paraphrase because this, this breaks it down and gives a picture of what this actually looks like. He says this, what matters most to me is to finish what God started, the job that my master Jesus gave me of letting everyone I meet know all about this incredibly extravagant generosity of God. Isn't that great? Our job is to let everyone we meet know about this great Savior named Jesus and what he's done for us. The early church grabbed hold of it, and they lived it out that you couldn't stop them. And in fact, you see it kind of ripple and trickle down through everything, how they, how they lived their lives, what they said, what they did, even uh, how they used their finances. Listen to this, Acts 4. Uh, 32 through 37, it's a picture of the early church. It says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. Nobody claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. They were seeking and saving the lost, right? And God's grace was so powerfully at work with them that there was no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them. They brought money from the sales and they put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anybody who had need. Now I read that and I think, that seems radical to us, but they're like, well, of course, that's, why we, that's how we would spend our money. You, you don't know why? Because nothing else mattered to them. The mission and the ministry and the life of Jesus was everything, right? To know Christ, to make him known. They were seeking and saving the lost, and they were doing it in every realm in their lives, with their time, with their talents, with their treasure, everything, right? Their relationships, everything. They believed that our time on this planet was, was quick, Right? In fact, James, the brother of Jesus, puts it this way. He says, he says, actually, what's your life? Your life is like a mist that appears for a little while and then is gone. The, the picture is like, especially this time of year when it's cold outside, you go up to the window and you go like this. And what happens? It, it hazes over, it fogs for a bit, and then you can see it shrink up, can't you? You can just see it shrink up until it's gone. It's like, that's what your life is like. Life on this earth, it's like that. It's here for a little while and then it's gone. He's like, you know what's going to matter? What's going to matter for all eternity? It's two things, right? Number one is, do you know Christ? Have you put your faith and trust in him? Are you living in a vibrant relationship with Jesus, right? Because that's the only way we end up in heaven, right? It's through, through a relationship. Jesus as our Savior and as our King and our Savior and our friend, right? That's the only way we end up in eternity. That's number one. And the only, only other thing that really ultimately matters have we, have we helped everybody else around us know about the greatness of Jesus? Are they, are those people around us, our friends, our family members, coworkers, neighbors, roommates, whatever, have we helped them come to know Jesus? So much of what we spend our lives on, can we just be honest, right? Our time, I mean, our talent, our treasure, so much of what we spend our lives on will make no difference whatsoever in eternity. It won't make any difference whatsoever. What will matter is Jesus and the mission of Jesus, right? And that is what the call is for you and me today. Would you use your life to help move the mission of Jesus forward? Uh, I'm a quote for fanatic. So I'll, I got, I've got some quotes. It's not just me, right? This is sort of the, the uh, it, 
the teaching and the understanding of the church for the last 2,000 years. You know, pop some of those up. These are just some highlight reels uh, that I like. He said, God only had one son, and he made him a missionary, right? The implication is he did that for us, and that's our call too, right? So we are called to go and be missionaries wherever we live, whatever our sphere. Steve Addison says, the mission of God flows directly through every believer, it flows through you and through every community of faith, every church that adheres to Jesus. Albert Tate says this. He says, don't allow comfort to compromise God's calling on your life, that calling to live for the mission of Jesus. Next one. Says, uh, this is a great one. Only a guy with the last name of Stud could make a comment like this, right? He says, some wish to live within the sound of chapel bells. I wish to run a rescue mission within a yard of hell. <laughs> he's, like, he's like, you want to know why we're here? We're here to seek and to save the lost. He goes, I don't want to come. I don't want to just stay in a little Christian, little churchy bubble kind of thing. No, I want to go out to where the lost are, to where people are struggling and hurting, whatever. I want to go there and point them back home to Jesus, right? What a stud. Anyway, go ahead. Next one. Every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Boom. Right? That's Spurgeon. <laughs> and this one, going along with the last one, I like a lot. It says, if God calls you to be a missionary, which he has, don't stoop to be a king. Isn't that great? Reminds us what is important here. What really matters? Is life about us building ourselves up and using it all? It's all in the here and now, keeping our focus just on what is seen, just on this world and in this life? Or, do we, or is this like a vapor? It's here for a moment and gone. And then all that matters is Jesus and eternity. If that's true, then it has radical implications for how you and I are called to live our one and only life on this planet. How are you spending the capital of your life? Are you investing it in stuff that's going to last, stuff that's going to matter? You know what the stats would say? The stats would say, no, we're not. The stats would say only one person in a hundred, one church attender in a hundred, only one has ever introduced another person to Jesus Christ. And, and they would say more than 50% of us have never even said the name of Jesus to a lost friend to kind of help point it. We've never even spoken or invited them or pointed them in the right direction of Jesus. More than half of us have never even said that. The majority of us in America, if you're a churchgoer uh, in America, we leave by far, like more than double the amount of money we leave our servers in tips every year. More than double, right, is what we give to the, to the church or to ministries that will help seek and save the lost. We give pennies, statistically. We invest our lives in stuff that doesn't last. We spend dozens and dozens of hours every week on social media and on Netflix and those kinds of streaming kind of things. Again, is there anything wrong with watching a movie on Netflix? No, of course not. But we spend all this time here, and, and the number one reason we would say of why we're not telling other people about Jesus, we'd say, I don't have time. Can I just say, it is not a time issue. It's not a money issue. It's not an anything issue. It's a value issue. It's a priority issue of what is most important in this life. Is it just me and you know, put our blinders on, the here and now, me and my, whatever's comfortable and easy and everything else? Or is it raising our eyes to the horizon and saying, I want my life to be about Jesus and helping as many people as I possibly can end up with Jesus forever? Oh, 
I'm going to get myself in trouble here. But I'll just do this and then I'll close. Romans 10 is just kind of a classic one. It says this. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. He says, everybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But then he asks this rhetorical question, which Paul often does. He says, but how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? And how can they hear unless somebody tells them? You know what the, the implication is here? Who should tell them? Now, let's be more, a little more specific. Who should tell them? Me, right? Me. How are, they, how are people in your sphere, how, how is your roommate, how is your family, how are your neighbors, how are they going to hear unless you tell them? How are they going to hear? How are they going to know? And I'm not talking about being churchy. I'm not talking about the Pharisee thing, looking down our noses and calling people names. The opposite, right? We're, we're, we're just beggars telling other beggars where to find food, right? It's the, it's the whole thing of saying, man, he has so changed my life. He can do the same for you. Just turn to Jesus, right? It could be that's part of loving people, part of serving people, part of it's just pointing them back home. We're not we're not just good people, right? We're Jesus people. That's who we are. That's what the good stuff is about. Two hundred and fifty thousand reasons for you and I to step up. You don't know how we reach two hundred and fifty thousand people. We reach them one person at a time. We reach the person that's before us. We reach the people that God has put on our hearts, the people right, that, that we see every day at work or the, the people we hang out with, our friends, members of our own family. I know uh, many of us have met Jesus here or, or through somebody that's, that's a part of Ignite, and, and I'm sure you, you share the same uh, feeling as I, but I am eternally grateful for a young woman named Jenny that walked across the room, that, that served me and my friends and loved me and my friends. And as God opened up the door, got to point us back home to the Father. And my life and my family for generations will be altered, for eternity will be altered because she took a risk, because she stepped out beyond her comfort zone. We gave her a run for her money at times. But man, my life is changed as a result. Who is there, right? This is the question for today. Who is there around you that God is putting on your heart? Who's, I think every believer ought to have four or six or eight or ten people that we've identified, that we've got on a list, that we're praying for at least once a week, probably every day. Praying for, God, would you draw them to this? Would you open up their eyes to see you and know you? People that we are building relationship with, where we are seeking, like Jesus, right? We're seeking. We are moving towards them, building relationships, loving, serving, whatever, looking for opportunities, praying for opportunities to point him back home to Jesus. There's 250,000 to choose from, friends. Who is your one or two or five or ten that's around you that, that God wants to use you to impact their lives and eternities? I want you to think about it this week. That, this is the first question, right? The, the first thing I want you to start thinking about, start opening your eyes. Who's even around you that is unchurched and likely disconnected from Christ? 
and start praying for them and start praying. And then the other thing, this is kind of the starting point for the series, but I really, I really want us to take our wallets, our money. This represents my calendar because everything in my life is on this phone, right? My, my calendar, my time, my talents, my treasure, right? And, and my job, my, my relationships, those around me. I want us to start laying those things before Jesus, right? Laying them out on the altar and saying, God, how do you want to use me in my life for your eternal purposes? I don't want to waste what's been entrusted to me. I don't want to just, I don't want to just be so busy that I just do the thing, but don't invest in stuff that's lasting. So how do you want to use me, God? I'm in. All right, can you do that? Those two things, just turning to open your eyes and ask, who is God putting around you that, that you can be praying for and reaching out to you and loving on and serving and everything else? And then secondly, God, how do you want to use my life, all of it, for your purposes? And then we're going to ask you to do what he tells you to do. And there's some specific ways, some goals and stuff that we have as a church and as individuals. We'll talk about that more in upcoming weeks. We'll talk about it a lot at the pie meeting, so I can't encourage you strongly enough, sign up today, okay, for that. But be here every week in this series. I really think God's going to stretch us over these five weeks. We're going to make some commitments, and then we're going to live those things out over the next 18 months. And I think as we do, I think we'll see scores of people come to know Jesus. I really do. I think there will be ripples. I think we'll have a ball together living on mission for Jesus together, locking arms and saying, you know what? I'm in. We're in. I think we'll see the church grow the Lord willing, over the next 18 months, we'll see the church multiply, right? And then we'll start a, start a campus in Bartonville as well and get to see more people come to know Jesus there. We do this because of the mission of Jesus. And the mission of Jesus is to seek and to save the lost. It's, what, it's the mission that we, you and I are called to participate in. Would you come along for the journey? Let's pray. God, we are thankful that, uh, first of all, that you have sought out us that you have come to live and even to die and to rise again so that we can come home, Lord. And if there are some of us here today that haven't yet opened up our hearts and lives to you, God, I, right now we just turn to you and just say, we need you, Jesus. Would you come and save us? Would you come and rescue us? Would you come and bring us home? We need and we want you. Best decision you can ever make. And Father, for those of us that, are, that have opened our hearts and lives to you, I pray that today we would hear not my voice, but we hear your voice calling us forth on mission. We enter to worship, but we leave to serve and to, to share and to seek and to save the lost. And I pray that you would send us out on that mission today. Give us your eyes to see those around us, that you have, that you have given us favor, right? That you've given us opportunity to love and to serve and inevitably to point to Jesus and as you open the doors to even share the gospel with, Lord, would you give us boldness and courage to step out of our comfort zone and to invest in lives and eternity, stuff that really matters. God, we want to uh, just open our eyes, help us this week to recognize those four or six or eight or ten people around us that you have put in our path for a reason. And give us courage to to start building a relationship and seeking them out. Pray that as we do, God, that you would bear much fruit for your kingdom. 
that people would come to know Jesus, that lives and eternities and families and generations, even workplaces would be changed, that your kingdom would come and your will would be done more and more in Peoria, in Tazewell counties, in our area, in our regions, in our neighborhoods. You make them more like heaven, a little bit more each day. And we surrender who we are, what you've entrusted to us. We, we lay it out before you and say, how do you want to use us? Would you use us, God? Would you use Ignite? But would you use us individually and together as a family to further your kingdom mission? We love you. We need you. We lift these things up in Jesus' name. Amen.